Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Gas is cheap, so let's waste it by driving up and down the same block trying to get laid. The year, 1973, the movie American Graffiti. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. Amy Nicholson will be joining me shortly. Um, today we are talking about the classic film, American Graffiti. But before we get into that, we are going to talk a little bit about last week's film, which of course was Some Like It Hot. Uh, before we even get into that, though, I want to remind you that we have merch. That's right. Unspooled's got merch. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to get your I Love Leopard shirts or the AFI AF shirt or whatever you want to get. I mean, look, there's a BDE shirt on there. But we've talked about it enough. Um, this is interesting. We're going to start off the uh, comments here with something from Squab Wheelman. Uh, it goes, in light of the last two weeks' episodes of Unspooled, I wanted to share my own personal Tony Curtis story. I was working at the Home Shopping Network when Tony Curtis made an appearance at the network to sell reproductions of his paintings. I was a stage manager assigned to his show. During the show, I was moving a preview monitor into place for the host of the show. As I finished, I slipped on a camera cable and fell flat on my back. Tony Curtis, his mic still hot, walks off the set of the live broadcast and helps me back to my feet, making sure I was okay. He gave me a big pat on the back and that bright Hollywood smile then headed back to the show to sell more of his paintings to America. I have another story from when I was retrieving him from the green room before the show, but that one's a little blue. Hey, well, you can't leave us hanging about that. What did he do in the green room? Does a green room story tie into the other story? It seems like you made some sort of blue connection to him, and now you're not going to tell us it? Come on, squab wheelman. Tell us what happened. We can do blue on this show. Watch. Shit. Fuck. Piss. 
All right. Anyway, uh, also just a uh, hats off to um, Rip Taylor, who passed away this week. Uh, classic uh, actor personality. I don't know. I, I felt uh, some sadness that uh, Rip was gone and uh, and such a great sport like Tony Curtis. One of those people that later in his life seemingly was still just having a blast uh, every time he came out. I once was at a Comic-Con and he was selling cookies of his own face. It was awesome. Saucy Upstart writes, watching American Graffiti for the first time, and 10 minutes in, holy shit, how many times did Linkletter see this? So far, I like Days and Confused better, though. Hey, no spoilers, Saucy. We get into it. Just wait your turn. We'll get into that in just a bit. Anyway, uh, Matthew Rankin uh, jumps in to go back to Sun Like It Hot, because that's what we are talking about. And Matthew writes, Paul and Amy missed a callback. When Marilyn is talking about how she doesn't care how rich a guy is, the toothpaste is a reference to a previous conversation she had with Tony Curtis in which she talks about all the bad dudes she's dated. They use all of her toothpaste. Well, sorry, there we go. I missed that. And I apologize, Matthew. And I hope that the ghost of Marilyn Monroe also uh, takes my apology here because I did not mean to upset her uh, at all. Jonah Luck weighs in on a conversation that I forgot that we had. Uh, I respectfully submit that a drag Hans Gruber, the bad guy from Die Hard, should be named Hans Boober or Hans Groper at the very least. I will see myself out. Well, thank you, Jonah. You will see yourself out. Uh, but if we're talking about it, I mean, look, I do want to see it. Now I do. And and that is a that, you know, you should be writing for drag uh, John McTernan films. Uh, all right. Uh, Ellen Cheshire writes, hi, Unspooled. Hi, Ellen. I love the Sun Like It Hot episode. There's been a remake called Connie and Carla. Came out in 2004, and it sees Tony Collette and Nia Vardalos, who also wrote this, as singers who witness a murder and then go undercover on the run as drag queens. Well, okay. If we're saying that that is a remake, then we can also just say that uh, Sister Act is another kind of remake. We can say We're No Angels with Robert De Niro is a remake. I mean, I think there's a a long line of people uh, seeing a murder and then dressing (laughs) Dressing oddly uh, as the as the last resort. I'm sure there's a million other ones, but those are the two that come to the top of my mind. Oh, I remember another one. Sister Act 2. So, people, this week we are talking about American Graffiti, and no matter what Saucy Upstart has to say about Days and Confused, we are going to talk about it earnestly here right now. But um, we asked you, what um, piece of graffiti would represent America to you. It's a little bit more of a heady call to action, but here are some of your responses. Hi, this is Nancy calling from Maine. For my American graffiti, my first choice was don't panic, to which my partner said, no, that's a British thing. That's not American, to which I immediately was like, oh, then just panic. Panic is my American graffiti. I think it'd have to be a piece of bacon wrapped around an iPhone. Uh, I don't think there's more, more Americana kind of uh, graffiti than a big sloppy American flag. To represent America, I would spray paint Schwarzenegger's thumb sinking into the molten metal from Terminator 2. Given our political situation that we're in right now, my piece of American graffiti would be a big butthole. I love these answers. First of all, I do love the boldness of someone <laughs> just uh, just taking a British uh, slogan and just kind of making it an American, which 
says a lot of things in one, but uh, I think if I was to vote for a winner, I would pick the pothole. I mean, the pothole seems pretty amazing. Uh, it, you know, we have infrastructure. It's a little bit flawed, but you know what? We got them roads. And that, that's kind of America, right? Potholes and all. Uh, all right. Well, enough of my yapping. If you want to continue to follow along with us, you can definitely uh, picture. You can definitely uh, purchase a, a poster that Scott C. Scott Campbell made for us. You go to podschwag.com. Check it off with us. All 100 movies on there. And it's beautifully designed. And uh, we actually have it up here at the Earwolf offices. It's beautiful. Uh, so get ready to check American Graffiti because it's now time for our future presentation. The year is 1973, and the cost of a gallon of gas jumps to 57 cents, nearly twice the price from the previous year, thus opening the door in the American auto market for smaller, more gas-friendly Japanese cars. Inflation nearly triples, and the U.S. enters a tumultuous recession. There goes that post-World War II economic expansion. Nixon declares to the world, I am not a crook. Great impression. Roe v. Wade rules the Constitution will protect a woman's right to choose abortion. And the first commercial airbags are offered in the Oldsmobile tornado. Audiences flock to the theaters to watch The Exorcist, The Sting, Robin Hood, and today's film, American Graffiti. It comes in 62 on the AFI Top 100 list, up, up 15 points from 77 on the previous list. Amy, American Graffiti, who's in it? What's it about? Well, as you just recapped, this is a year of upheaval, nonsense. Who knows what's going on? Everything's turning upside down. Oh, no, why can't things be calm and peaceful like they were in the past? And they can if you go to see the movie American Graffiti, written and directed by George Lucas, also co-written by a few other people, Gloria Katz and Willard Yuck. It is a story about four friends on the eve of where their futures will take them. These four friends being Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, Paul Lamette, and Charles Martin Smith. Also, Cindy Williams, Candy Clark, and Mackenzie Phillips as women who run into their paths and intersect with them. All by hopping in and out of cars as they drive up and down the boulevards of Modesto, California, listening to music from the DJ Wolfman Jack, who's playing the classic hits of 1962. That 1962 being critical because 63 is when JFK will be assassinated and America will start this madness descent into, into all the upheaval that we're hearing about at the top of this show. So I think it's kind of lovely that this movie comes in at 62, being set in 62, being about the era of 62 when everybody thought things would be calm and happy forever. So Amy, American Graffiti, I think to know why this movie is impressive is to kind of know a little bit about its backstory. This is... I mean, an aggressively independent film almost became a TV movie. I mean, Lucas doesn't have enough money to pay his crew members. So the whole idea of like full credits are because of this film. Like he couldn't pay people. So he said, all right, well, you know what? Um, why don't I give non-department heads credit for the work that they're doing on this movie, which was never done before, which is kind of crazy. Only the department heads got the credit for the films. I was watching an interview with one of the actors in the film. He was paid $3,600 for his entire role. This is George Lucas reacting to Vietnam. You know, when everyone else is kind of, you know, in this idea of like, oh, we're, we're losing our way. Let's go deeper into it. Like we've talked about all these movies that come out in the 70s, you know, and, this, and the directors that are going into war and going into, you know, ideas like Taxi Driver and, and the, the scummy side of America. Lucas, in a very traditionally Lucas fashion, 
goes backwards and kind of embraces the past. And like, couldn't we just go back to this when people cared about their cars? Well, I think this is George Lucas responding to his own personal Vietnam, right. which is that he had made the sci-fi movie THX 1138 and it failed. And I think to him, that was the tragedy he was most directly responding to okay. because he wanted to be this big, ambitious sci-fi director. He made this kind of chilly, artsy, sort of Kubrickian, um, very like beautiful, stark, monotone film. And everybody said there's no humanity in this movie. It's cold. It's chilly. Even his wife, Marsha Lucas, was like, you need to make a movie that has human life to it because you're just being thought of as this cold technician. And he was like, he actually told his wife, emotionally involving the audience is easy. Get a little kitten and have some guy wring its neck. He was like, I can do that. I can make an emotionally involving movie. I'll just make a movie about my childhood because it's all I know. Because I'm a guy who like loves movies, grew up like this. Did a lot of drag racing when I was a kid, cruised the boulevard a ton, went straight to film school, and just have only ever wanted to make movies ever since this moment. This is the one story I have to tell that is actually deeply human and not me aspiring to be Kubrick. So fine, I'll make this story. I'll show you all I can make an easy, heartwarming American story with my eyes closed. Well, and he did. I mean, yeah, it's a very simple movie. And I will say that hearing what you just said, I'm going to jump right to the end and give you my major complaint with it. The end is exactly what you described, the epilogues. Like, all of a sudden, these characters that we've been with, you pay them off in these really incredibly depressing ways that really I thought was incredibly manipulative. Like, this guy's killed by a drunk driver. This guy's killed in Vietnam. And this guy just becomes a tax accountant. You know, and it was, I was like, wow, it was sort of like, why twist the screw there at that moment? It it felt so empty to me. Um, it left me with a bad taste in my mouth, honestly. I was like, what an odd way to end such a clean, happy little movie. And by the way, I can break into this a little bit more in a bit, but only the three guys get epilogues? What happened to all these women that we met in the film that are equally weighted characters who have... I would argue sometimes a more dynamic life. Um, we don't know anything about them. It's like, oh, yeah, just Richard Dreyfuss, Ron Howard, uh, Milner, and the other, the nerd. That's, <laughs> that's all we care about. Um, I have a bunch of things to say to what you just said. I'll start by saying, congratulations, Paul. You are now officially Pauline Kale. Because her entire pan of this movie, she was one of the people who went very, very hard on this movie. Uh -huh. I didn't even pull her review as the one I was going to pick because I was like, you know what? We have Pauline Kael say the negative stuff a lot. Sure. But I loved her pan because her pan is exactly about that. She said that the epilogue in which none of the women are mentioned, she called it, quote, one of those bizarre omissions that tell you what really goes on in men filmmakers' heads. And what women, who now are for the first time in movie history, half the movie-going audience, bitterly or unconsciously swallow. And she made the exact same point, which I agree with, that the women are more interesting than the male characters, but Lucas doesn't even think to care about what happens to them. Well, and it's such a bizarre choice because he wrote this film. I mean, these are the characters that he created. And he did a great job defining these characters, but it leads me to believe that maybe his writing of it wasn't as involved as I thought, because from what I understand, the script was okay. And then when Coppola came on to produce it, he brought on these other writers to help him flesh out these characters and actually expand the universe of the film. And it feels to me like the epilogue was written by George Lucas and the film was written by the co-writers, or at least the way it kind of is presented, because it seems to ignore what we just spent two hours and 10 minutes watching. Well, it's kind of funny. I mean, Lucas's 
argument for why he didn't include the girls at the end was that he said adding a title card would have made the ending longer. Motherfucker, this guy <laughs> adds credits to pad it out. People think, you know, I, I talked about that idea that he like let you know listed other people than department heads. And some people who have a much uh, harsher view than I said the only reason why he added the other people's names to the credits was because he wanted to add another song to the film. I mean, this movie has like 40 songs in it, you know, it's um, (laughs) but like, no, no, no. I mean, what I think is kind of funny about that ending is I've I've been dwelling on this ending since I rewatched it. And it got me really thinking that, you know, any film becomes more resonant when you add a depressing bummer to the end of it. I know it's a cheat. It's a cheat. I was thinking I was trying to think of a good example. And I was like, you know, Hustlers. That's a recent period piece about us as far apart from us today Mm -hmm. as American Graffiti was in 73. Like, what if Hustlers ended with the title card and then J-Lo died in Benghazi? But no, I mean, that. but by the way, yeah, exactly. Because it's like, it's as if it's, it's the, like what he just said. You can emotionally manipulate your audience any which way you want. You can strangle a cat. That's what you're doing there. You're you're not earning that. You're not earning it. It's like you get somebody so invested and go, no, they got shot in the head. Wait, what? What? Like it's as if you know you're getting cold cocked by information. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> I mean, I was actually thinking about this. Like, do you think that Animal House like ripped that off? Like, kind of was making fun of that. A thousand percent, right? I yeah. I mean, because Animal House is the same thing. We're watching these dudes. They're hanging out. They're hanging out, and then it's like, oh, nonsense at the very end. And I forget who dies, but a lot of like people die, right? But I mean, it's kind of. but it is definitely a, a comedic version of this trope. And let me just go out on the record. I think I'm I'm going a little harsher lately on some films. Um, this is a good movie, right? The performances are amazing. Um, it visually is fun. It's an inter- you know, it's an independent film. I again, I'm gonna just jump out and say it right at the top. Don't believe this belongs on the top 100 films of all time. Doesn't mean that it doesn't have so many great things going for it. It just is unspectacular to me. It's very simple. Um, I love Richard Dreyfuss. I think that uh, Ron Howard is doing something very different than what you've seen Ron Howard do. And I couldn't help but think to myself like, man, how does Happy Days not pay someone for essentially taking this movie and making it into a TV show? Like this should have been called George Lucas's Happy Days. I mean, like <laughs> like when you from even the cast, but there's so many elements. I know. I mean, usually when we talk about the legacy of a film, we start pointing to other films. But with American Graffiti, I was like, oh, the legacy of this film is because of this, Happy Days exist. Because Happy Days exist, then we get Fonzie. Uh, because of Happy Days, we get Laverne and Shirley. We get Morgan Mitty. Yeah. Like, we would not have... Huge people. We would not have Penny Marshall or Robin Williams if not for American Graffiti. You know, you look at something like Superbad or Dazed and Confused. These are two films just off the top of my head that do exactly what this film does and way better. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument that this is one of those movies that's important just because it started kind of a trend in our own films. I mean, I would even say that like the movie that came out this year, like Good Boys, is better. But honestly, when this movie came out in 73, a lot of critics at the time were like, oh, we were making these movies in the 40s. But You yeah. know, a bunch of kids hanging out. Like, even this isn't even revolutionary back then. What's revolutionary about it is just that it has this legit soundtrack idea, you know, playing the pop hits of the day and turning it into like this oral landscape. I mean, but Amy, let's go and just make a simple comparison. Like the last picture show, that's this, but not as deep. 
You know, it's like that's 71. You you can't tell me that this movie is made in a vacuum from that film. I mean, it is this is the network television version of the last picture show. Like, I mean, and I, and like, and, and, but that's George Lucas to me. Like, I, I think what makes Star Wars great and the idea of Star Wars is this like version of space. And, you know, like George Lucas is never going to make, you know, the matrix, but I think this is great for what it does, but it just, I can't help but go, we already, we just did this two years ago. Like, and and I think the reason why this is on this list is because George Lucas is one of those, you know, figurehead people, and they all get their movies up there, you know, Coppola's voting for George, and George is voting for, you know, Francis, and, you know, everyone's, uh, everyone's... Yeah, because if we're talking about the inner circle, this film is such an example of the inner circle, right? I mean, yeah. this is a film produced by Coppola, who was like an old buddy of Lucas's already at this point for years. Spielberg is already buddies with them at this point. Everybody's hanging out, Milnus, everybody, everybody's a buddy. They're all buddies. You know, so like the buddy quality of the list, I think, is most evident in this film being on the list. Absolutely. And again, this is not... It's not a bad movie. It's I not like, a bad I'm, movie. Yeah. It's it's so fun to watch. And I think it's... I think what I find so interesting about it is if you were to watch this film, you could say a couple of things. One, George Lucas has an amazing eye for talent. Like he does. Like this cast is pound for pound just absolutely great. I mean, Richard Dreyfuss is fantastic. Ron Howard, great. Charles Martin Smith, you know, uh, you know, uh, Cindy Williams, like you said, Candy Clark, they're all just great. Mackenzie Phillips, you know, he's getting these amazing performances and it makes me really question how subsequently each film he directs, the performances get worse and worse and worse. And it's, it's almost as if his grand takeaway from this movie was, that yellow car is cool. Let me do more about that. And let me worry less about the people around it. Because I would argue that Star Wars is a little bit of a mixed bag of performances. Amazing idea. But a mixed bag of performances. And when you get to the, the Phantom Menace, you forget it. Like, I mean, you know, like. I mean, here he's trying to prove that he can handle actors. Yeah. And it's like, why did you stop? Although, yeah, to be fair, I mean, the actors who worked with him on this movie were, like, very confused by his directing style. You know, the way that they would talk about him is he would just show up. This Ron Howard would talk about this a lot. You'd show up on American Graffiti. There'd be several cameras because he wanted this documentary type of feel. He wouldn't tell you which camera was really focused on you. It was Nashville style in a way. And then he would just say, go. And he would not tell you, like, anything except for maybe, like, the tiniest tweak, but really barely that. Like, you could go a whole day acting and he would barely talk to you at all. Well, but I think this is apparent throughout the film because what the characters do and say don't often make sense. Like Paul Lamatt, I was watching an interview with him, and he plays uh, John Milner, the, the the guy who I think is the the prototype for Fonzie. Has also, a, like the photocopy of James Dean. Yes, um, has this moment at the end where he's racing Harrison Ford. This has been leading up; the entire movie has been leading up to this race. Will he do it? Will he not? And he races Harrison Ford, and he seemingly, from my eye, as a non-racer, he's winning, right? And then Harrison Ford crashes, his car flips over, a big crazy thing, and and John is like, I was losing, I was losing. It's like, wait, you were? Like, you didn't do it. Like, again, it's like this emotional manipulation. Like, you're, you're seeding this thing that you didn't quite show. It just sort of seems like, Okay, what we need to do is this, and we need to do this. And I was in this interview with Paul Amad, he was like, Yeah, it was weird. Like he would give us this direction. I'm like, how am I but I'm not doing that? Like I've not like I'm not like like I think he knew the beats that he needed to hit. 
Uh, and and to the actor's point, they do they comes across great. Like I think the dynamic between Paul Matt and Mackenzie Phillips in the car is wonderful. And maybe it is a movie where you just have actors who has something to prove too, because Ron Howard's coming at it going, I need to break away from Opie. Yeah. I need to be something different. And he's a little harder edge than you see him. And Richard Dreyfus, I mean, this is kind of early in his career yeah. too. He's I mean, great. the word they're all using is stuff like liberated. But I think that car crash is super loopy because, you know, they've been building up to it, building up to it. Harrison Ford is apparently a really good driver. He's come all the way to drive. Yeah. And it just looks like he drives off the road and the car bursts in fire for no reason. There's nothing ahead of them. There's no speed bump. Nobody clips his tire. He just drives off the road because that's what happens in these pop songs like, you know, Last Kiss. Yeah, I love all these songs about death from the 50s, yeah. like death and race cars and stuff but 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 he just crashes and and it also feels like why does john feel like he's not going to be able to race anymore like i get but like it's as if i'm short pitching you the film i'm going and you know you got the you got this guy who's been around for a long time and he's kind of like losing his way and uh you know and then this person's coming in it's like well like you're just kind of hitting beats it's like there we don't really see him losing his way like you know like oh is his car not fast enough but it really isn't about the car it's not about the car it's about him it's about his struggle of staying in this town but yet we don't see it articulated more than literally the physical manifestation of the car it's like the car won't carry me it's like but I don't see him being like un like. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that like makes well, sense. I mean, it's I think there's like this really insane contradiction at the very heart of this film that's touching on what you're touching on, right. which is Lucas has painted a picture of this lovely Modesto when everybody was safe, when nobody seems to lock any of their front doors, mm -hmm. when any girl could get in any guy's car. You could let your little sister get in a car with some random guy because everybody was watching everybody. Everybody knew everything. Everything was fine. Everything is safe. And then at the same Except time, you try to rob a liquor store. Yeah, come and out then at the same time, there's insane stuff. People are sticking up liquor stores. You yeah. could just go and get shot at. People are getting kidnapped by gang dudes. There's like killers everywhere. I mean, but this is the tone of Lucas that is only getting worse with subsequent films. It's like a mix of tones. It's like it's like yeah. uh, here's a tuna fish salad with a pineapple inside of it. It's like okay. I like two of these things. Like, Wait, it's a tuna fish salad with a pineapple inside of it. So it's like a pineapple coated in tuna fish salad? Maybe it's like a, a hollowed out pineapple with tuna fish inside of oh, it. Oh, that would make know. more sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean but, but also it's like, hey, little girl, get in this guy's car. Totally fine. But as soon as she gets out of the car, there's like 50 men yelling at her. You're like, what yeah. is this town? None it's, of this town makes sense I to mean, me. I mean, and you know, <laughs> I mean, also the pharaohs. Like, the pharaohs are an interesting point of view, right? Because we open up the film with Richard Dreyfuss coming into the the scene, really efficiently written, like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to take this scholarship. I don't know if I want to leave home. And I guess his rite of passage or what he learns is <laughs> – he gets, like, hung up with this gang. He's like, well, I guess I'm going to go to college. But it's, like, like it's like weird. This gang is really crazy tough. Um, like, you know, they're, I mean, well, they're stealing, you know, they're stealing quarters from vending machines, but then the next scene, they're ripping out the bottom of a police car. Like, that seems like, it seems like lovely, but it also seems like he wanted to rip out the bottom of a police car. I, I, I don't know. It's like, I think everyone gets to where they are supposed to get to because if you would follow like the hero's journey of these characters, but they're not earned. It's just sort of like a, a like, again, like this kind of just 
grouping of scenes. Yeah, I kept feeling when I was watching this movie that the Modesto of George Lucas's fantasy kind of reminds me of, say, being inside Beetlejuice's house. You know, where just <laughs> weird things are happening. You can't leave. You eventually find out it's because everybody is dead. Right. You know, like, I mean, no wonder they try to peel out in this race car mission. Nobody's even at the finish line. They're, what is this metaphorical finish line of this race? Who even knows who's judging who wins? Because everybody dies. Uh, but I mean, you know, but then there are these other really cool things that he peppers in that I love. Like, I love this idea of Wolfman Jack throughout the film. Like, and I think that that's such a cool idea. And this idea of like this you know, God-like figure and who we are and, you know, who's Wolfman Jack and, you know, and I love that scene between him and Richard Dreyfuss. I feel like that's such, what a great scene. And I love the idea and we're we're in the medium that they're talking about right now, which is, you know, when you're in someone's ears. Hi, uh, hi, I'm in an ear. Hey, I'm in the other ear. Oh, wow. Oh, are we, are we in stereo? Yeah. Hi. <laughs> but I mean, when you're in somebody's ear and you're in somebody's car, like that idea that you feel close to these people, that you are connected to them because it's like a personal space. And I and that's so wonderfully articulated here. Like Wolfman Jack is is a giant backbone of this film. And yeah, he's this unseen god, even in the way they talk about him, this mystery of something from beyond. I mean, yeah. this is the way they talk about him in the film. Are you French operator? This is a collect call Wolfman Jack. I, I love you, operator. Is this Wolfman Jack? It's Floyd there. It's for Wolfman Jack. I just love listening to Wolfman again. My mom won't let me at home because he's a Negro. I think he's terrific. Do you know that he just broadcasts from a plane that flies around in circles all the time? Do you believe that's true? Floyd, I love you, Floyd. Floyd, is this you, Floyd? Floyd, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiled and did reply. Who made the eyes but I? Floyd, reach out and touch my soul, Floyd. Your party's ready, sir. Hell, Floyd. Matilda. You tell her, Wolfman. He's my man. When I graduate, I'm going to be a Wolfman. And it, it connects every one of these characters. We're seeing them. Mm. We're seeing people through different cars, through different status and class. I love I mean, that it idea. feels exactly like what Tarantino lifted for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, I was thinking about that too, and I was not going to bring it up because I, I felt like I referenced that now. We reference it like in every movie. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but there was something about that I, I felt really uh, connected to. But I also feel like, and not the same way, but I think Days and Confused does a great job of this. Like, yeah. you know, mixing between the statuses of or the classes, like the stoners versus the rich kids versus the jocks. Like, um, and to be honest, I still get a thrill when I pull up next to a car and we're both listening to the same station. Did that ever happen? That happens. It to happens you? to me. I love listening to the radio because I like I like taking choice away from myself yes. and being subject to chance, and that's what the radio is to me. Oh, I love that. And so I love it when I pull up and by chance someone is also doing the same thing that I am. I feel this unity with another car that I find really lovely. Also, I just want to point out that little throwaway line mm -hmm. that uh, Mackenzie Phillips says in there that her mom won't let her listen to Wolfman Jack because she calls him, quote, a Negro. Yeah. Is fascinating. I mean, A, that's really, I think, the only time American graffiti even glances on the idea of race in the turbulent 60s. It, yeah, this is a very white movie. I mean, this is very as white, white as Modesto. Very, 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 very white. And also... Um, Wolfman is not actually, in fact, you know, yeah. the, but nobody knows what he looks like. Nobody can picture him at all. And he is this kind of mythical figure. And that was actually true for the real Wolfman. Like he actually had the KKK burn crosses in his yard. 
twice wow. during his radio career because he was known for really supporting black artists. And so that idea of nobody really knowing anything about him was kind of true. And this movie is one of the first things that put his face on screen, this iconic person that people have been wondering about forever. Well, now, is it true that he was like broadcasting from a station in Mexico? Yeah, right across the border in Tijuana. The so best, the best place. Obviously. They could play whatever they wanted. They didn't have to like follow the the rules of the FCC at that point, right? Yeah, and more importantly, they could broadcast really loud, by which I mean Wolfman in Tijuana was able to use an antenna that was five times more powerful than the highest antenna allowable by American law. Wow. Five times. So that means from Tijuana, he could reach New York by AM radio, which is insane. That's amazing. And, th and he wasn't the only DJ there. There were multiple DJs at the station that all kind of had this you know, he's the most famous, but they all had this kind of aggressive person. It was the coolest thing to listen to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it was pirate radio, except like from across the border. He's it, like Christian Slater and pump up the volume, just yeah. like kind of speaking it as it is. You know? And, you know, he would move around a bit. Like sometimes he would move to Los Angeles for a little while. He'd move around, but then he would just send his tapes to Tijuana to play them from Tijuana wow. so they could still reach everywhere. Well, what I love about the reveal of him, and this is very un-Lucas-like, I think. It's very much like Wizard of Oz. You meet him, and you see this guy, and he's so – he's eating a popsicle. It's melting on his finger. There's a really wonderful moment there of just seeing this this giant larger-than-life personality off air. And I imagine – you know, I grew up watching, like, a Wolfman Jack cartoon show. I feel like that was going on when Gary Coleman had a cartoon show. Really? I should Google that right now and just see if I'm, like, misremembering that. Yeah, but I remember Wolfman Jack the cartoon show. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Now now I'm seeing a still of this. He had a best friend who was a parrot? Yeah. A brief Google will show you that that show produced by Dick Clark only aired for seven episodes. But I remember it because it's like this is the time where Mr. T and Gary Coleman also had cartoon shows. He was like a popular guy, but to show him I mean he was very cool in that cartoon show, or at least the way I remember it. And to show him kind of not cool and but yet he was a real person, I think is really interesting. That's fascinating. Like, I went actually down kind of a Wolfman rabbit hole, and mm -hmm. I was listening to some of his old um, actual real radio promos, like this one. Wolfman Jack is the guy. He really is. He scares me. He's the cooker. Oh, Wolfie. What was that? <laughs> and I love the idea of driving in the darkness across the country, listening to AM radio oh, and hearing my God. that. But, I, I mean, here he functions to me like a mythological figure. He's this man. He's giant. He's imposing but cuddly. He lies about his identity. He's kind of a trickster god in a way. He's like Zeus being like, hey, you're a sexy cow or, you know. Well, I think it just shows you again the, the power of radio. I think that there's something about like that's the most interesting point I think he's making is like what goes on in cars. Like that – to me, is such a cool idea. It's, I think, why, you know, there's, um, look, and I'm sure next month there'll be another article about the podcast boom, and it will be somebody else who just started a podcast like three weeks ago. But it, like, it, like, what's so interesting is that people are feeling connected back to this, what Wolfman Jack was. It felt special. But now, instead of everyone listening to Wolfman Jack, you all have your own Wolfman Jacks. We're all Wolfman Jack now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but I still, I love the advice that he gives Richard Dreyfus. I can't talk for the wolf man, but I can tell you one thing. If the wolf man was here, he'd say, get your ass in gear. The wolf man comes in here occasionally, bringing tapes, you know, to check up on me and whatnot. Yeah. And the places he talks about that he's been, the things he's seen. And there's a great, big, beautiful world out there. 
And here I sit, sucking on popsicles. I mean, what is kind of wonderful about that is he's pretending to be the guy who is living a life of adventure. I mean, you say that he actually did move around and do it, but there, it, there, it works. This scene, oh, this scene, so it's good. It's beautiful. He gives Chef's the kiss. push out of the town. Also, he has kind of sexy eyebrows. I mean, I think Wolfman looks great here. Wolfman is is really killing it. Um, He's definitely a zaddy. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Let's talk about the music. Obviously, like Wolfman is kind of running, you know, one of the biggest and most interesting things about this film, which is the music. Like he is dictating what we're hearing throughout the entire film. And this movie starts with a bam. It's like a hit in the face. And again, going back to Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino does a, a lot of these moves. It's interesting. Like, I think Lucas is a very adept filmmaker. When plot and story come in, it's a little bit less adept, but all the moves that he's making here are interesting, right? I mean, you would argue. I, mean, I think that the music idea behind this is fucking fantastic. Yeah, I mean, when this movie starts, you can't help but just be like, I will pay attention. Yep. I don't know. <laughs> One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat flags up. And that is also the Happy Days opening. Am I correct in saying that, right? That is exactly the Happy Days opening. Again, uh, this is insane. Why wasn't there a lawsuit? Well, if I if I could, this is Devin, our engineer, engineer Devin. Yes, um, the timeline actually is that the the pilot that became Happy Days yeah. is before American Graffiti. Okay, okay. Lucas saw that pilot. What? Because he was friends with these people. No, and stole the casting <laughs> from the pilot. <laughs> this is crazy. But it was unsold. Like like ABC weren't going to do anything with yeah. it until then. American they heard American Graffiti was getting wow. going and maybe had seen some footage and they're like, um, actually that pilot. Let's like actually make that. Whoa. So it's it's weird. Like. Like the synergy is is like so it, if he didn't steal it, yeah, it may never have happened. Wow. So yeah, I don't know who's gonna sue who, but it's an interesting that's, yeah interesting that's birthing process. Shocking to me. Yeah. Wow. And by the way, like what a damning thing for again for Lucas to be like, I saw something. I'm gonna make that and I'll steal the casting. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Well, you know, there's something else that gets cut out of this opening scene though, right here with all this music. Yeah. And that is something that mattered a lot to George Lucas. And he was really sad that the studio insisted that they cut it. There's this opening scene of, you know, the beautiful blonde in the car. The person he's calling yeah. the blonde angel played by Suzanne Summers. What? That was Suzanne Summers? 
That was Suzanne Summers. How old was she at that point? But so, I mean, she must have been really young because I'm, I'm thinking this is this is pre this pre Three's Company. Three's Company. Well, they tell you know they tell a lot of like fictitious stories about her that we do not know if they are true. Right, she's, she's married to somebody. She's a prostitute. But here's the way that Lucas saw her in the opening scene of the movie. What he wanted was for this blonde woman, the blonde angel that he called her, to drive through an empty drive-in while being transparent. And he said that transparency will show that she doesn't exist, that the perfect woman does not exist. Wow. So in a way, like he wanted the whole movie to be about Richard Dreyfus chasing this kind of mythological thing. That and never I love that too, but it, it but it dilutes the ending because what's so kind of great about it is he's chasing her the whole night, and the fact that she does exist and she calls him. I mean, I like that he makes a choice that he's going to leave. He he doesn't stick around to meet her, but. It's kind of an amazing idea, like, because we're always, or the general we, are like, well, but if tomorrow something may happen, so I should stay here, you know, like that idea. And if he goes and never speaks to her, I almost feel like it's more powerful. It's a more, I mean, it's a little bit more subtle, too. Yeah, but then you get this, like, closing image that I think, to me, is really beautiful of her car cruising straight along the road and us finally getting off the road. You know, we've been stuck Mm -hmm. on pavement, on wheels this whole movie, finally being in the air up with Richard Dreyfuss, looking at this woman below, and that they're going in the same direction but parallel. You know, they'll never meet anymore because now he's up in the air. That is a beautiful image. But then imagine if she just, like, evaporated. It was like, you'll never find the perfect woman. But I love that without the phone call. I think you could do everything without the phone call. I'm not nitpicking it that much. It's still cool, but I feel like why even why even get them on the phone? I don't know. But I want to hear the frustration in his voice when he first hears her because to me, I mean, classic kind Dreyfus of like, here. This is like this is like Krippendorf's tribe level Dreyfus. Like, yeah, let's listen. Let's listen. Quick, quick, hang a right. What? Why? Stephen, cut over to G Street. I just saw a vision. I saw a goddess. Come on, you gotta catch up to her. Come on, Kurt. We can't be spending half the night chasing girls down for you. Maury, I'm telling you, this was the most perfect, dazzling creature I've ever seen. She's gone. Get it. She spoke to me. She spoke to me right through the window. I think she said, I love you. That means nothing to you people. You have no romance, no soul. She, someone wants me. Someone roaming the streets wants me. Will you turn the corner? Oh, Kurt. I, I love that. I mean, I love him in this movie. Um, and I love how everybody in this car, you know, they look kind of normal together. Yeah. You know, they look like sort of soft boys, you know. Yeah. A little bit like, oh, gentle, colorful, but they look average. And then whenever they get separated apart, they all look like kind of nerdier. Yeah. You know, this plaid shirt that Richard Dreyfus is wearing just looks more and more ridiculous when he's hanging out with the pharaohs. Oh, I know. That everybody looks out of their league when they're apart. That's yeah. really interesting. Um, can I pitch you my quick idea? I mean, we may have already talked about it on the podcast, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I love this Richard Dreyfus energy, and if you were ever to remake Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I think you need to do it with Kevin Hart. I feel like him and Kevin Hart share a similar energy, and uh, whenever I can get a chance to talk about it, I will. <laughs> Get Kevin Hart in there and remake Close Encounters. Like, can you imagine that movie, Close Encounters, with, with Kevin Hart? It would be great. It would I be great. I do kind of like that. Isn't it great? It's a great, it's perfect. 
Well, I think the one difference with Kevin Hart is that Kevin Hart seems to hate everybody else on the scene a little bit more than Richard Dreyfuss does. Like, Kevin Hart would be really angrily doing the mashed potato thing uh-huh. and, and being like, y'all are fucking idiots for not thinking I'm no, cool about this. No, really? Oh, I think so. I don't think he could let it go. I think Kevin Hart would get up at the top of the spaceship and turn around and be like, I told you y'all suck. You know? <laughs> That's Kevin Hart. I don't see him as being that aggressive, but okay. Um, you know... This movie was written in a really interesting format, which was like, it was written like an ABCD structure. So, you know, uh, after D, you go back to ABC, you know, you keep on going back and forth, which is also, again, as we're talking about Lucas and the creative choices, the movie is eventually edited on out of that order. But it is like, it's interesting that he really wanted to tell a movie like this. Like you said, you know, we're just bopping, literally just bopping around, you know, around a circle. And this is why I think people didn't like this movie or, or get on board with it. I think people just found it to be fine. Like, and, and Lucas did so much to get people excited about this movie. Like he would never let people screen it by themselves. He would pack the theater with everybody at Universal they could get. So they would have this like kind of raucous, you know, reception because this is going to be a movie that was going to be dropped on TV. Um, It wasn't going to be in the theaters. And then it does go to the theaters and is like one of, I think, even to this day, percentage-wise, one of the most profitable films ever made. Yeah, I mean, Lucas's argument was that it was supposed to always be on theater and that there was one guy at the studio who was supposed to distribute it who didn't understand that it was genius (sighs) and that this one guy just was a big dummy. Like, to Lucas, I mean, this is a lot and it's very complicated, but maybe we should touch on this a little bit because it's going to be coming up again and again pretty soon. You know, this USC mafia Mm -hmm. clique. Right? Because we've been talking about the USC Mafia clique. We talked about it a little bit when we did um, Apocalypse Now. Yes. And the Francis Ford Coppola and Milius connection. So George Lucas shows up at USC a little bit after them. you know, Or a little bit after Coppola. Not much. What happens is he's kind of considered one of the prodigies of USC. Because he does these strange visionary things. He's always breaking rules at USC. Everybody's like, you're kind of a troublemaker, you kid. You know, he's supposed to do like a 10-minute movie at one point, And instead of doing a 10-minute movie, he just has credits show up at the 10-minute mark. And everybody was like, oh, man, I want to see more. And he was like, uh-huh. And just kept – the movie kept going from that point on. And he was like, that, I made the whole thing. Screw you guys. That's hilarious. So he was just this guy that everybody knew was sort of anointed in the USC group. And so he wins this scholarship to go work on a movie set. And what was happening in Hollywood at this moment kind of reminds me of now. Where, again, they were making gigantic, big blockbuster spectacles, and nobody was quite sure how to tap into that easy rider, young, youthful energy. Mm-hmm. Except for somebody like Francis Ford Coppola, who was going around pitching himself as like, I can get you that. I know all the young filmmakers. I can bring you this giant, young energy to the studios. Stop. Did he? Well, he, he tries. What happens is Francis Ford Coppola is working on a Fred Astaire movie, mm-hmm. you know, our good old buddy Fred yeah. Astaire. He's working on this movie called Finian's Rainbow, and George Lucas wins this kind of scholarship to go on the set and observe and work on the film. And when he gets there, he's like, oh, this is like tedious old studio bullshit. And Francis Ford Coppola, who's only 28, sees this kid like lurking in the back, glowering at the movie. And he's like, see anything interesting? And George Lucas is like, not yet. And that's Whoa. how they became friends. Interesting. This stuff, by the way, now I'm going like down a rabbit hole. But this is kind of similar to Spielberg's even introduction, like kind of being an asshole walking around Universal, like, you know, sneaking onto lots, Hitchcock's kicking them off. Like they they all are coming in real cocky on their internships. They're all cocky kids who grew up watching movies who are like, this is what we deserve. Um, 
By the way, also, Francis Ford Coppola fires a person who was near and dear to us when we were talking about the Swing Tom episode. Yeah. He fires Hermes Pan, that choreographer who's oh, been working wow. with the stair since the 30s. So, but he's like, I'm a hotshot. I fire you. We're all done. Anyway, Lucas convinces the studios to give them a bunch of money to start like hiring young people like George Lucas to make these like young hit movies. The first one George Lucas does is this THX 1138 which bombs. And then after that, they're all kind of scrambling and in trouble. Francis Ford Coppola is like, oh, well, I guess I have to take this Godfather job. So he does. Wow. And then George Lucas is like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know where I'm going to find another job. I guess I have to do this thing where I do make a movie with heart to try to sell myself and rebrand myself. So they're all scrambling. But this is when George Lucas really wanted to make his movie that was supposed to be Apocalypse Now. You remember that that was George yeah. Lucas's idea? Oh, wow. But he never gets to make it, and it eventually goes to Francis Ford Coppola. So but, there's a lot of, like, back-dealing and blah, blah, blah. But it's then, interesting, too, because you're also talking about Lucas is not not without job offers, right? So after THX, they want him to direct Tommy or Hair, uh, even this movie Lady Ice. But he says, no, no, no. Um, you know, he does this film instead, which is an interesting idea because, like – you could look at it in one way, which is like, no one would hire him. So he made this personal film. It's like, it's also stubbornness. It's like, no, people would hire him, but he wants to make his film, which is a, you know, an interesting, he wanted to prove something to the people. Like, yeah. and I was like, I need to make this. He wanted to prove. I think you're exactly right. Although there's one person who wanted to go to USC who did not go to USC, but was planning on going to USC in the same program to become a director. And that was Ron Howard. Really? Yeah. And then he got this role and he was like, all right, all right, all right, I'll put that off. This so they kept him out of directing. He, we could add more Ron Howard films if it wasn't for George Lucas. You need more? The men already made what? Cocoon, Willow, Backdraft, Apollo 13. You need more movies than that? You could have gotten a younger, uh, <laughs> a younger, a younger guy Da Vinci yeah, Code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he could have made Frost Nixon when Nixon was still alive. What I think is so interesting about this film is, you know, he's trying to break out of the, the character of Opie, the very soft, cute kid and then he does this character that has an edge he's this character has an edge to him he does uh, is I, it a marshmallow edge or a butterscotch edge no you don't think that he has a little bit of like not like he's not edgy but he's kind of a dick he he's, doesn't he thinks he's too good for the town yeah like he doesn't feel like richie cunningham like richie cunningham is a little bit different i don't know there's just an energy to him it's like <laughs> oh that was interesting to see his uh what i'm sorry i'm just picturing i'm just picturing ron howard in this movie with, like, a tattoo being, like, I'm an edgy man, like a mohawk <laughs> dressed up like taxi driver. But I just thought it was interesting that, like, as an actor, it it was the most I'd ever seen him kind of do that. And it was almost, uh, I guess now in retrospect, because I'm looking at it, you know, way after he's done it. I was like, oh, that would have been an interesting way for him to go, to see this. Or maybe I'm just reacting to it because I only know him as a sweet version of himself. Yeah, I mean, the Ron Howard in this movie... It was like, you don't really see him again until dot, 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 dot. Ron Howard shows up with a cameo in the Jamie Foxx Blame It on the Alcohol music video. Do you remember this? What? Do you no, this? I don't. Oh, oh, my God. The Blame It on the Alcohol video, which is a terrific song, terrific character song, uh, wonderful great. song on every level. Um, it, like, opens up with, like, some really rad, rad party happening. Yeah. And it's like, oh, these cool people are getting out of limos. It's like Samuel Jackson, Forrest Whitaker, Jamie Foxx himself, Jake Gyllenhaal, and then Ron Howard being like, what? And like mean mugging as he walks in. That is amazing. I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> you know, uh, Can I one admit of the- something just because yeah. I'll never get to admit it on any other level, I think, probably. Um, Ron Howard looks exactly like my dad in high school. 
Like when I was a kid, my my grandma had like the eight by ten high school graduation picture, and it was always just to me Happy Days kid until I realized it was my dad. Oh, and so it it is a little weird. There are two people who reminded me of my dad on TV: Mm. Um, Ron Howard and Harry Anderson. They're just these are my fictional dads. I love that. So, anyways, watching him in this movie is it feels like watching my dad in high school, even though this is probably not my dad's high school experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to deprogram myself from thinking of it as my dad. Wow, that's so interesting. Wish my dad looked like Ron Howard. Harrison Ford, also in this movie. And you know what I realized? Again, the the myth of this whole thing, like, you know, Harrison Ford working as a carpenter when he gets cast in Star Wars. You know, Harrison Ford, kind of cocky. He's great in this movie. Um, but, like, they're like, cut your hair. He's like, I'm not going to cut my hair. This part's too short. I'll wear a hat. You know, it's like uh, Harrison Ford, like, arrested for a bar fight while shooting this movie evicted from his motel room like harrison ford you know the i guess the 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 myth of star wars was like he was a carpenter that like was working for just like jesus george lucas i mean just like jesus did i mean by the way can we make the the god myth here i mean like you know wolfman jack is the god right like he's the godlike uh-huh. character they're all trying to find god and you know they're go, you know going to it like harrison really- ford is in a fiery car wreck and survives it's basically like getting crucified i mean there you go um and actually to complete the trifecta um i have like a a story that brings back to spartacus okay sure okay so when harrison ford was first trying to get acting jobs when he was in la when he was really young even before Mm -hmm. this even before the carpentry thing because i think like he was trying to act went into carpentry to make money because he wasn't getting acting Mm -hmm. jobs and he wasn't getting acting jobs because of stuff like this he played a bellboy in this movie i know this clip very well yep Mm -hmm. (laughs) he played a bellboy in the movie and this executive called him over and he was like i want to tell you a story kid first time tony curtis was ever in a movie he delivered a bag of groceries a bag of groceries kid and you took one look at that guy and you knew that was a movie star and ford's like well i just thought i was supposed to be a delivery boy and the guy was like and he fired him I love it. Tony Curtis. He could deliver groceries like no one else. (laughs) You know, this movie, it's a tricky one because clearly people liked it. I wonder if people liked this film partly because it comes out at a time when America is going through turmoil and it's safe and it's fun and it's, and you can really take your mind off of things. I know we've, you know, um, you know, kick the dead horse that is Green Book at time. But, you know, you can make an argument that Green Book comes out at the same time. You know, when we're dealing with complex race and societal issues, this movie comes out and simplifies it to a certain extent and and, and brings it back to a simpler time. And we all go, oh, yes, that's what I want to see. Yeah, and Maybe I, that's why there's so many 90s movies coming out now. We're like, yeah. remember when the middle class was fairly middle class? Yeah. Remember when we weren't at war, except for that one that we just won and a bunch of heavy metal people did like a song about it? (laughs) I feel like this movie is a real byproduct of its time. I think it's a byproduct of the directors who are of a certain age remembering their childhood. You know, when you could pick up, when this one, when cruising was the thing to do. Yeah, I mean, could I admit, I'm watching all these people cruising in this movie, just but not driving, Al just driving up and down the street for no reason. And I'm like, this is why the baby boomers are totally guilty for destroying the planet. <laughs> I mean, their their hobby was just to waste gasoline at a time when cars were even more polluting than they are today. By the way, I did love one thing about this, and we kind of hit this a couple times in this podcast, but the idea that they go, like, oh, man, town's changing, you know, you used to take like all, you know, three hours to do a whole block, and it's like the town's getting smaller. Like, I love that that's a constant theme always coming up. Like, you know, 
we're that we're changing. It's you know we are always, I guess, in this moment of nothing is as good as it used to be. It used to be better. It used to be bigger. It used to be have more heart. And yeah, I, I and did Modesto like that. Modesto had changed so much that they couldn't even shoot it there. Oh, really? Yeah. But I mean, but to your point about nostalgia, yeah, like we don't usually read positive reviews on this show because we're like, it's on a list. That's a given. But I couldn't help looking around and I saw that Roger Ebert's review of this, which was a total rave. Mm -hmm. uh, The first couple paragraphs, he doesn't even talk about the movie. He talks about his own history. He talks about his first car and what he bought it for and how he used to cruise around in downtown Urbana and what he was listening to on the radio. And then he finally says, you know, whole cultures and societies have passed since 1962. American Graffiti is not only a great movie, but a brilliant work of historical fiction. No sociological treaties could duplicate the movie's success in remembering exactly how it was to be alive at that cultural instant. Which is so striking because it's just 11 years later. Mm. It's just 11 years. That doesn't even seem like that long, but people are talking about but it. Do you think about the way that Vietnam affects well, this yeah. country and, and, and the way it affects our youth and this must feel so incredibly foreign it it is you know i think that the the litmus for a great high school film and i was thinking about this you know watching it is can you enjoy it without having any connection to the time you know and and dazed and confused definitely is a movie that i am not connected to that was you know before my time and i really enjoyed that you know i think about the breakfast club the breakfast club is kind of the same idea here you know it's like here's a you know bunch of people at a crossroads and how they kind of meet and go forward uh and i think that that's an interesting thing of what stays timeless uh and and what doesn't and for me this actually feels too sanitized where last picture show is a roughly the same time and it feels much more realized it it seems like this is the version that we want to remember and we want to tell our friends about but we actually lived in last picture show if that makes sense you know i mean the movie i kept thinking about watching this and that i kept wishing was on was hairspray Mm. the original hairspray because i love that movie so deeply and that's also such a jukebox film you know wall to wall with songs from that period but it also gets into what it was like to be alive there with the actual real dynamic. It gets into racism and right. it gets into people gossiping about women's sizes and bodies and who's sleeping with who. And it gets into competitiveness. And there is a darkness alongside the sweetness to that movie that I really respect. That's not just a dude shooting up a liquor store and everybody's like, oh, OK. And the cops are too busy trying to arrest kids for speeding. You know, and not to say that, you know, um, it's a responsibility as a filmmaker to – to be fair and balanced in representing every culture and every type of person. But I do always find it to be, and we can make the same point for Days and Confused, uh, odd when you're doing such a giant ensemble movie and you really, you don't show much difference. Uh, I mean, here, race is kind of non-existent. I would say that class is kind of non-existent in this film. Like, I think that this is, you know, several different stories of people that are pretty much the same. Like, yes, the pharaohs are, are, bad guys, but they actually look just like Richard Dreyfuss. And, you know, they they don't look like they, you know, they don't look scary, you know, and maybe that, you know, Lords of Flatbush, uh, that could be the same thing. But yeah, uh, there's no external pressure. There's internal pressure. Like yeah. Richard Dreyfuss isn't like, I can't afford to go to school. Mm-hmm. He's just like, do I want to? Yeah. It's, and that's a lot like I think George Lucas himself. I mean, he grew up in very comfortably middle class. They say his dad owned a stationery store, but when you hear about the stationery store, it seems kind of more like a sharper image. They had cameras and things. He could oh, buy wow. cameras and 
train sets. I mean, he was not a poor kid. He lived yeah. in, you know, comfortable luxury. I think he had an entire shack just for his comic books, which will come up when we wow, talk about Star Wars. Wow, I wish I had Wars. that. Um, well, you know, uh, but he did make some sacrifices. He missed his high school reunion because he was shooting this film. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. You know, one of the titles for this film that I really like was Another Slow Night in Modesto. That was one of the original titles. And Rock Around the Block. Very literal. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Rock Around the Block, though, is kind of a fun title, especially uh, based on the song at the top. American Graffiti is an interesting title. doesn't... I don't know if it totally fits, but I have to say it it is, I think, cemented as a great title because of the illustration of the poster. The poster done by uh, a Mad Magazine uh, artist, and I'm blank. Mort Drucker, Mort, Mort Drucker uh, did the poster, and it's such a beautiful poster. And that poster, um, you know, if I never seen the movie, I definitely seen that poster. And the way it looks and the, and the titling of it, it's so kind of wonderful. So just a shout out to that design. Uh, really, really well done. And everyone looks like they're in a Mad Magazine story. Which drop back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You got that in there too. Although it's interesting that when this movie came out in 73, all the studio executives didn't seem to know what graffiti was. Oh, really? Yeah, they were giving him pushback on the title because they literally thought graffiti might be a foot thing. Really? Yeah, yeah. American graffiti. I'm not kidding. I mean, Wow. Yeah. That's bizarre. <laughs> but anyway, I'll use that as an awkward segue to talk about how awesome all the girls are mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, whose feet we do not see on windshields like we will, you know, decades later. I want to start just by talking about Cindy Williams, mm. you know, who plays Lori, who plays this girlfriend of Ron Howard's. You get the sense that they have been the perfect couple of their high school. She's head cheerleader. He's what, student class president? Yep, they were there. They were invited back to the high school dance to just kind of show off. I love that scene when Ron Howard like tells off his teacher and the teacher realizes he has no power. Oh, it's a great scene. Oh, that's another scene that they wanted to cut, actually, that Universal really? tried to cut. Yeah, they wanted to cut that one. They did actually manage in cutting it from the first theatrical release. They also cut the car lot scene. Oh, wow. Yeah, they wanted to get rid of that one too, um, which is – yeah. The car lot scene is a great monologue. I thought at first it was Joe Flaherty. It's not, but uh, it's such a great little uh, sequence. Oh, and they also wanted to cut the scene where Harrison Ford's Bob Falfa. Can we just say that Bob Falfa is the weirdest name ever? Oh, yeah, 100%. That Bob, When Bob Falfa sings Some Enchanted Evening. Oh, I love that moment. Laurie. Yeah, these are all the great moments. Uh, let's listen to that for a second. You will see a stranger. You will see a stranger. 
across the crowded room. Anyway, he's singing that to a very unimpressed Cindy Williams, who is in his car through a series of contrivances. She's mad mm-hmm. at she's mad at Ron Howard. The, whoever the beautiful girlfriend was that Harrison Ford had in his car all night, I don't know. She's evaporated. Yeah, she just disappears. She just disappears so that Cindy can get in. But I really respect Cindy fighting back against Ron Howard this whole movie. They have this slow dance at the high school where she's just trying to talk about their relationship and realizes he's blacked out everything. He doesn't have the memory of it, that this thing that she has always held so sacred – well, she even, wonders if what it even matters to him. I mean, it even starts before that when they're at the the diner when she takes off, you know, his necklace, you know, like, and you see it all in her face. It's not done with any sort of dialogue, and you 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 watch her pain as you know, basically, Ron Howard's like, I want to be able to, you know, go to the bone zone when I go to college, and uh, you got to wait on me. Yeah, maybe we should go to the bone zone now tonight if you don't want me to forget you. Yeah. To which she's like, she gives in just. For momentarily, just mm. to screw with him in a way that I was like, wow, Cindy, you brought that. But don't you think it's a damning end that he does stay in Modesto, he doesn't go to college, and like it's like, oh, that woman, she held him back. Yeah, if she just hadn't randomly gotten in that car with that guy whose girlfriend randomly disappeared mm-hmm. and he hadn't randomly run off the road and the car hadn't randomly burst Amy, into flames. stop it. Then, this movie is perfectly scripted. Then Ron Howard would have not become an insurance salesman. You're like, dot, dot, dot. Okay. I mean, the movie never asks if she wants to leave town. It no. It doesn't even seem to be they, I mean, by the way, like, I mean, the, one of my favorite characters, and maybe this is a great segue to talk about our guest today is Candy Clark, who plays Debbie, because Debbie also is this this character that is so kind of full of life. And I think when you first see her, you perceive her one way. And she unfolds in a, such an interesting way. And uh, when you first meet her, she appears one way, and then we, we're quick to learn that it's not exactly that. But take a listen to this. Buenos noches. Uh, look, you sure you don't need to live somewhere? Huh? Hey, you know John Milner? John Milner's a good friend of mine. Hey, did anybody ever tell you that you look just like Connie Stevens? You do, I really mean it. For real? Yeah, I met her once at a Dick Clark Roadshow. Yeah, you really think I look like her? Yeah, no shit. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, I mean that I'm not just feeding you a line. I mean, I really think you do. You look like, you look like Connie Stevens. What's your name? Debbie. You know, I always thought I looked like Sandra Dewey. Oh, yeah, well, you look a lot like her, too. Yeah, is this your car? Yeah. I'm tearing the... Um, well, they usually call me tearing the tiger. Yeah, it's really tough looking. What school you go to? Dewey. Can I grab her? Yeah, it's got, I got a 327 Chevy in it. It's got six drummers. Ah, that's bitch and tuck and roll. You know, I really love the feel of tuck and roll upholstery. Do. Yeah. Well, you know, come in. I'll let you feel it. I mean, you know, you can touch it if you want. Um, I'll let you feel the upholstery. Yeah, I mean, a few things. She's introduced as this Marilyn Monroe figure walking yeah. down the street. But when she gets to talk, she's kind of a weirdo. You see her swinging her purse in a strange way. She's really interested in cars. She's got a brain going on that isn't yeah. just like... Beautiful girl, bimbo. You know, I kind of, again, going back to the end, I kind of feel shortchanged. I don't know what happens to her character. I mean, you know, I've, I I want to see where these characters go. Well, you know there's a sequel, right? Yeah, but no one from the 
the original movie is in the sea. I, I thought that was like a maybe like a like something that they just kind of did one and done or something. Like oh that. no, oh no, they are all there. They are all there except for Richard Dreyfus. Oh yes, it so even very weird film. Wait, so this even follows in the footsteps of Last Picture Show in the sense that they. Why? Wait, how many years later? <laughs> they make it, I think, in 1979? Yeah, 79. Wow. Here, wait, let's listen to the trailer and then let me tell you about it because it's real weird. Okay. Hey, maybe remember at the end of American Graffiti, you wish there was more. Well, there is. It's more American Graffiti. And just as crazy. Uncle Sam says, I need the toad. Terry the toads in Vietnam. Steve and Lori are happily married. Debbie's different. Pregnant. I'm in love. John Milner's the same. I'm John Milner, the owner-driver of this car here, and this is our team t-shirt. I'd be deeply honored if you wore it. She's a foreigner, John. My last shirt, too. One more word out of your commie mouth, kid. I'll ring your neck. Commie! Turn around there. I voted Republican! I can't control it! (laughs) Amy, my, 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 this is... This is almost beat for beat what Last Picture Show did. Like, they just leaned into, like, a slapstick. And most of the, I mean, like, two of these characters at the end of the first movie are dead. Yes, you might be wondering how they pulled that off in this sequel. Let me tell you. So the way that this is structured is it takes place over four years. Okay. um, 1964, 65, 66, 67. Each year, it takes place on the New Year's of that year. So it's like four different New Year's. And what happens is everybody kind of exists in their own timeline. So in timeline one, you get the whole story about Milner because he's going to die. But you get like your last year with Milner as he's a race car driver. In two, you get the Vietnam. But he was killed by a drunk driver. He was killed as a race car driver by a drunk driver? Uh, yeah, I don't want to spoil it for you. But yes. Um, in two, the second one, the second uh, timeline is the Vietnam story with Terry the Toad. The third timeline. Which is like slapstick central. He's firing a machine gun and falling down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you learn actually that he does not die in Vietnam. He fakes his own death. Oh, boy. What? Uh, The third timeline is our beloved Candy Clark, who is now sort of like a a summer of love kind of groupie. She's Mm -hmm. in love with a rock star. She's trying to get him a gig. They get pulled over for marijuana. She's living in this kind of crazy 60s house where one of her roommates is Mackenzie Phillips. Whoa. And then timeline four, the very last year, is Ron Howard and Cindy Williams are having fights as a married couple. They have two kids. She walks out on him and gets caught up in like a Vietnam War protest, which is how Ron Howard shows up to try to rescue her and yells like, I'm not a Republican. And their main their main fight is that she wants a job and he won't let her have a job. Wow. Wow. And wow. if that isn't weird enough. let me Okay. So you know how we wanted to do the A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D? Yeah. That's what he does in this one. Like, Lucas doesn't direct it, but it is completely filmed in that ABCD. You just keep oh, going from year to year to year to year, goodness. back and back and back. And each year is filmed in a completely different style. So That's the Vietnam looks like a Vietnam movie. Right. Like, I mean, the framing rates are even different. Like, the whole 60s rock and roll section with Debbie mm-hmm. is in this kind of stroby, crazy, diptic, triptic nonsense camera style. It's an insane film. Well, now, I mean, uh, this guy, Bill Norton, is the writer-director of this, you know, who also directed uh, one of my favorite TV shows, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I guess 
Lucas goes to Star Wars. He can't come and do this. So is this kind of like the Star Wars holiday special? Just kind of like, does he give it its blessing and then it goes and runs? I mean, I will say the one good thing that this film does is at the end, it again does the kind of summaries of what happened to oh, everybody no, again. else. It does. It does. And some of them stay the same, but they have a little bit of resonance. You know, now saying that Ron Howard is an insurance agent, you see what his life is like. And it because he reconciles with Cindy Williams at the end, it's almost romantic. Got it. But it also does tell you what happens to Cindy. Cindy gets to have a job. She gets to be the head of a consumer group. And Debbie becomes a country and Western singer. Wow. And I have to say, I am looking at the poster right now from more American Graffiti. They didn't even bring back more Drucker, it looks like. They just kind of got like a a slapdash version of it. It looks more like caricatures on the beach. Um, Wow, wow, wow. Wow. Well, I watched this movie for you and this podcast. I'm a true American hero. Well, now, I mean, I guess without any further ado, we need to talk to Candy about both of these movies. So uh, you know her, obviously, from American Graffiti. She's also been in films like Zodiac and Cool as Ice and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Please welcome Candy Clark. Well, so the first thing I want to know is, like, who is this character of Debbie to you when you were coming up with her? Me in Fort Worth, Texas, you know, looking for action, looking for liquor, looking for a hamburger, <laughs> looking for a date, looking for fun, looking for a party. Back in the day, that's when you would, could just walk off with a stranger. You know, it was a whole different world back then. We were doing the same thing in Fort Worth that they were doing in California and apparently everywhere else, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. Well, so what you're describing to me, that helps me kind of really put American Graffiti in context when it came out. Because I've always struck by, you know, this, the nostalgia that somebody like Roger Ebert felt when he saw this movie. And I was thinking, it wasn't that long ago, but it, it does it, did it seem like a lifetime ago when you made when this When we film? shot it, uh, the story was taking place in the, in the 60s, but we were actually shooting it in the 70s, the early 70s. So a lot had changed with music. Uh, fashion, hairstyles. Uh, the oldies sound was pretty passe, and it was Rolling Stones and uh, uh, Beatles. It was just a much different sound and a much different lifestyle, and drugs came in. Nobody was smoking marijuana or anything in uh, American Graffiti because that was really not around. The 70s was a total different era, even though it was only 10 years prior (laughs) that this whole other lifestyle was happening. And the cars changed. Um, It just totally flipped over. And that's why it, it feels so nostalgic, even though it was only 10 years prior. Let me talk to you about, you know, getting involved in this movie. You know, you, uh, you know, talk to me about the process of auditioning for George Lucas, because I heard it was well, a very different... I went in, I was pretty desperate. It had been a year since I got a job. You know, the first uh, movie I ever got was basically handed to me on a silver platter, and I thought, wow, that's pretty easy. I am totally switched careers. I was... Uh, starting to make strides in modeling in New York City. And then uh, I tried out for this part in a film called Fat City, and I got it. And I was like, wow, okay. And so, but then... And that's amazing, by the way. You worked with John Huston. I just, I had to, when you said Fat City, I just, you worked with John Huston. It was such a treat. I mean, and talk about fashion. That man dressed as a director, but old style, 
with the cape and the Sherlock Holmes matching Sherlock Holmes hat, you know, and just always pressed and starched and but very down to earth. And when we did that film, Fat City, um, Ray Stark was the producer and and John Houston. They were they were like really really great friends. And but they always invited all the actors, you know, to have weekend parties and hang out. And 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 John Houston tried to corrupt Jeff Bridges and I by by offering us tequila with the worm in it, and we were just <laughs> <laughs> nerve to try. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you're saying that because in my mind, John Houston seems like the epitome of cool, and he's just this kind of very adventurous director. And then you work with George <laughs> Lucas, who seems to be the opposite. You know, uh, like, you know, he's a little bit more of the introverted guy. So was it a very different experience? It you know, was totally different, except... There were all these young actors all together at the Holiday Inn. Mm. So uh, we, you know, it didn't matter if George hung out with us or not. Right. We, all, we had each other. And there was always something going on uh, at the Holiday Inn. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. And George Lucas, gradually, as we were filming, because it was a real crash course in filming, it was 28 nights basically, and there were a few days that were, we shot day for night, but mostly it was actually night, mm. and long hours, we'd be picked up about four o'clock, and, you know, then we'd go into the makeup trailer, and, you know, such as it was, and start getting ready, and uh, maybe they picked us up at six, but it got dark, and then we would start shooting, and we'd get back to the hotels around six in the morning. Well, I mean, didn't Harrison Ford get kicked out of that hotel because he started yes, a fist fight? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, every, you know, every morning we'd have, there would be Ron Howard, me, uh, Cindy Williams, uh, McKenzie. We'd be talking about the what the bad boys did the night before. We'd wake up and there would be, uh, at that time, there was a big, tall sign with a revolving Holiday Inn sign. Right. And there would be beer bottles on the top of this long, I, I don't even know how they got up there, but, you know, it's like 12 or 15 feet in the air. And, you know, just things like that. Every morning there was like something to gossip about. Let me just ask you one question about your character. I love your character in this movie. I think that you just, you play such a layered, um, you uh, such a layered character. And I was wondering... Did you get a chance to bring something to that role, or was it it was it presented to you kind of fully fleshed out, and then you just kind of brought it to life? Or well, was... you know what brought it to life because uh, was the hair <laughs> <laughs> and the dress, right? You know, the and the costume, and um, and the giant white underwear. I well, it was so cold that year. I mean, we shot a lot in Petaluma. Mel's was in San Francisco. That whole Bay Area is very chilly and foggy at night. So um, all I had on was that spaghetti strap dress and no stockings, nothing, and those little capizio flats. We had to act like it was hot summer night, you know, and so you'd get, uh, you know, you'd relax your arms and, stretch out and look like it was hot and sultry and then when they'd say cut you'd like oh shrink back into like oh it's so cold well what was lucas like as a director because this was him really trying to prove he could work with actors well 
we had a guy that would run the lines with us, a guy named Gino Havens, who was our line runner, and we would be called to Gino's room to, you know, do the scenes just verbally, not acting out, just we're sitting in a hotel room just running the line, so we have it memorized somewhat. And then we would go out to the set or the car or whatever, and... um we would do the scene, and you quickly learned, since it was a low-budget film, even though it looks fabulous and it looks like millions and millions of dollars were spent, we quickly learned that George was going to print um, the scene and move to the next one, like after one or two tries. So, you know, you got really on your toes after a while because... There was one scene where I flubbed the line, but he printed it, and I begged him, please, please, and every time I... Uh see the film I'm like oh there it is well it's that but, it's that ama- that's the the robbery scene right where where you have that flub but it, it yeah, seems so kind I, of natural did yeah it? did you get it yeah and I'm like <laughs> you know I was just like slurring my words and I just wanted I bet please can we just do it one more time please <laughs> and he said nope we're moving on I'm like oh. That seems like the opposite of another director that you worked on, because you worked on Zodiac with Fincher, which we talk about all the time as the example of take after take. Oh, and and you wonder why. Why are we doing this? But the thing is, his, to me, this is just my opinion. Mm -hmm. This may not be true. His goal is to create the most smooth, you know, uh, camera shots known to man. And so if there's a glitch or whatever, um, he shoots it. You don't know why, but we're just doing the same thing over again. Were you upset at the end of American Graffiti that you didn't get a postscript? Like, we know where some of the... No, you know what upset me about that? Because we'd had so much fun watching the film and laughing and everything, and it was such a downer. Yeah, right? I felt the same way. Oh, upset and mad. Like, why did he do that? Why did he... You know, he lifted us up so high, and with the music, we're all, you know... So happy. Happy and everything, and then crashed us down really hard with the... Uh, the, the death Paul of... Paula Matt character yeah. with Big John. I know. by a drunk driver. And it was like... And then the music is going... You know, and there's... You know, your favorite character has been killed. Yeah, maybe <laughs> if was, you were in the postscript, it would be like, you know, uh, Debbie shot in the street, you know, by... Uh, yeah, and <laughs> it'd be like, what the heck? <laughs> Why did you do that? He didn't even tell you guys that he was putting the postscript on until you saw the film? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And at the end, you had an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. And I, I did. I think, like, the the five people they nominated that year, including you, are just so interesting. You know, it's like this, there's, like, this big youth energy. There's you, there's Linda Blair, there's Tatum O'Neill. And then there's two fascinating actresses I also love a lot, Madeleine Kahn and Sylvia Sidney. I mean, it's such an interesting group of people. It was. And, um, you know, I knew I wasn't going to win. I ran my own campaign. I thought, you know... I'll invest in my career and my little business of acting. And so I ran little quarter page ads and the Hollywood Reporter and also Variety. I designed these wow. ads. So you kind of are doing what Melissa Leo got a lot of attention for. Just Yes, she okay. did. Yeah, they but you did it first. They kind of used my strategy as a prototype. Sally Kirkland 
gives me credit for that, too. But, um, yeah, I mean, why not? All these studios run ads, and nobody says a thing about it. But so then you so, get to bring Debbie back in More American Graffiti. And she well, gets Debbie to have... came back um, because the film was so popular. I, I called George and said, hey, let's do another one. And um, I thought that we would just pick up, like, you know, where we left off. And then the script came, and it was, like, broken up into four different New Year's Eves. And then Debbie, it turned out, was working at a... Was I working at a strip bar? I don't know. You it was were. kind of a psychedelic era, era and Debbie and 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 uh, Mackenzie, the kid, were now living together in Haight Ashbury. You know, it was just <laughs> totally a different movie, which not, was not a big hit with the public. I mean, you've done so many, like I think, classic films. You know, like I mean, and you've worked with so many amazing people. You know, is there something that you you think about that you walk away from that you've kind of learned from all your experiences, you know, from working from it with everybody from like John Houston to like Vanilla Ice? Uh, you know, it's like you you have like this really wide swath of amazing experiences. Like, what do you take away? You know, what's a piece of advice that you would give people that are out there doing this? You know, I've... I was in the Blob remake, and, yeah. you know, not every film I've done has gone into the best 100 films of all time, but they've all been, you know, I I really look at the writing. I'm, I read a lot of books, and I, I kind of know, uh, you know, a good story. And, um, like, the Vanilla Ice thing, I just had a little tiny part. Right. But, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun, and it was neat meeting him. And I mean, especially at that point in his career, too. Yeah, and I, I, there were, I remember we were all in the makeup wagon, and there was Vanilla Ice, and there was a guy there trying to sell him, what you know, quote-unquote, diamonds. Right. Loose diamonds <laughs> in his hand. And I said to Vanilla, I said, you know, because of your success right now, there's going to be a lot of people approaching you with phony baloney stuff. Don't fall for it. Yeah. So So. fun. Well, this has been so fascinating talking to you. Thank you for giving us some of your time. And um, it was great to kind of talk to you about this film. Well, you're welcome. Your questions were very good <sighs> and not just your ordinary questions. So you made it fun. Oh, well, well, great. Thank you. All right. All right. Thank see you later. Right. Have a lovely day. Bye-bye. All righty. Bye-bye. And now I guess it comes to the most important part of the show. Were there any bad reviews? This movie, we know it's the most profitable film. It makes like $115 million. Uh, did people not like it? I mean, we know Pauline Kael didn't like it. Yeah, Pauline Kael really hated it, and I suggest people go read her entire review because mm-hmm. it's very well done, as is everything Pauline Kael, and now Pauline Shear, the mm-hmm. two of you, really We're both clicking on, on things. I picked this review, though, um, from the San Francisco Chronicle, who gave it zero stars. Wow. And because it gave it zero stars, by the way, and because that was his local paper, George Lucas's local yeah. paper, being that he was from Northern California, all of his family friends thought the movie was a failure. Anyway, wow. San Francisco Chronicle review goes... It's the end of summer, Kennedy is president of the U.S., and we are in a small California town where the kids' favorite pastime is cruising their cars and drag racing. If this sounds familiar, you were presumably either there at the time or had the misfortune of seeing a movie called American Graffiti, which opened yesterday. If the latter, I can commiserate, because it is without doubt the most tedious film I have ever seen. 
whole new vistas of boredom widescreen open to the imagination after this breakthrough. I don't exactly know what that sentence means, but that's what they wrote, so, okay. The plot concerns this unusually unattractive bunch of kids, one of whom is trying to decide whether to go east to college the next day or stay home. Their experiences are rather artlessly intercut. The action takes place over one interminable night we spend with them as they get beaten up, watch a robbery, vomit from drinking, grope each other, and play pranks such as removing the rear axle on a police car and letting the air out of tires, and generally comport themselves in the fashion of young people with too much time and too little intelligence. The excessive footage on the cars is wearisome in the extreme. Grand Prix, it isn't. It was directed by George Lucas and co-produced by Gary Kurtz and Francis Ford Coppola, Believe It or Not. The Believe It or Not is because of the big hit. The Godfather just was. And I want to say Grand Prix, it isn't. That line's funny because from what I've heard, George Lucas was on the set of Grand Prix as an assistant cameraman or a second cameraman. So he actually helped make that film that she said was much better than this one. That's so interesting. Do you think that San Francisco just wants to take the piss out of Modesto? It's like, hey, you're 90 minutes away, but we see you. We know you. Wow. I mean, apparently George Lucas never wanted to tell people he was from Modesto. And when you asked him where he was from, he would just say Northern California. Which, (laughs) actually, I got a little into the history of Modesto. Yeah. The the slogan of Modesto, its official model, is water, wealth, contentment, health. That's their their motto. Yeah. They came up with that motto when they had a competition, like a best motto competition yeah. that they held in 1911. And Water, Wealth, Contentment, Health was actually not the winner. The real winner was a motto that was, nobody's got Modesto's goat. That won. It got the votes, but the town officials declined to have it as their motto. So they gave their $3 and the motto to the runner-up. That is hilarious. I mean, you know, when I watched this movie, I didn't have my Google Maps out. And, and it felt like this could have taken place in Ohio, but to know it was only 90 minutes outside of San Francisco in the 60s makes me go like, what, what are they taking planes? They're getting out of here? Like, what? Like, like it just felt like, oh, we're, we're so landlocked. It's like, you literally are like less than two hours from like the most exciting cultural epicenter of our country just wait till you see more american graffiti where it is again new year's eve and everyone is in (laughs) t-shirts uh all right well amy there has to be a simpsons right i mean there's so many things to pick from in this cars wolfman jack uh, there are, but I decided to pick two Simpsons, if you don't mind. All right, sure, never mind. I kind of like mixing and matching these Simpsons, like cooking. So the first one I picked is from an episode called Take My Wife Sleaze, where Homer sees an ad for a um, theme restaurant, a 1950s theme restaurant, okay. that is headed by a man named Wolf Guy Jack. They <laughs> have a dance contest, and this picks up with him and Marge winning the dance contest. By the way, picture this. Wolf Guy Jack looks like Wolfman Jack, of course, and behind him is his cartoon wife, who does not get to say a word, but she is dressed exactly like Debbie Dunham. Well, I've never seen such reckless disregard for a wife's well-being in my life. You just won yourselves a motorcycle. It's mine. Finally, I've won the respect of my fellow men. Get away from it! Okay, Hepcats, let's twirl some more platters at Grease's Cafe, where the 50s are never going away. Well, that dream is over. At least we still have each other, right, honey? Honey? There's also a little bit of a Pulp Fiction nod there. And the next one I picked is from uh, an episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes to try to buy illegal fireworks. I bet this place sells illegal fireworks. Just go in and act casual like you buy them all the time. 
Uh, yeah, um, let me have one of those porno magazines. Large box of condoms, <laughs> a bottle of old Harper, a couple of those panty shields, and some illegal fireworks, and one of those disposable enemas. Uh, no, make it two. Oh, my God. A bottle of old Harpers. All right, so next week we are talking about another American classic and probably one that everybody who is listening is very familiar with. We're talking about Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. Godfather 1, not a remastered, not a reboot, not a combined, the original released version. This is not the one with Jabba the Hutt in it. Sorry, wrong movie. Anyway, um, and we want to make sure that we have a fun call to action. So we're going to pretend that Amy and I are... The Godfather. We are the Marlon Brando in this scenario, and it is the day of our daughter's wedding, and you are going to call and tell us what favor uh, you need from us. Now, we don't even want to be bothered. It's our daughter's getting married out there, but but you know what? It's important, so why don't you come to us on the day of our daughter's wedding and ask us for a favor. Whatever that favor is, we want to hear it. You can use voices we love that. Uh, give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Once again, Amy and I are the godfather. It is our daughter's wedding, and you are asking us for a favor. Make it clever, and more of the accents, the better. All right, we'll see you next week for The Godfather. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.